This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Martin Amos, novelist, essayist, memoirist, and screenwriter, died of cancer on May 19, 2023, at the age of 73. This is the second of five interviews with Martin Amos, recorded over a period of 23 years. In the first, from November 1991, I spoke with him about his novel London Fields and his early career as a writer. In the second interview, recorded January 27, 1998, I'm joined by my late co-host Richard A. Lupoff, and we talk with Martin Amos about his two most recent novels at the time, a short genre novel titled Night Train, published in 1997, and a much longer novel, The Information, which came out two years earlier. The interview was digitized, remastered, and edited in August 2023. After London Fields, you came out with a short book, which was kind of speculative fiction called Time's Arrow, then another big long book, The Information, and then another short experimental book, this time Police Procedural Slash Mystery. Is there a real pattern here that we're detecting? Yeah, it would seem so. And before that, there was a short book, Einstein's Monsters, and before that, a long book, Money. I seem to alternate um, the short and the long. And I can, you know, it's only in retrospect that one observes these patterns. When you finish a long novel, well, when, when I finish one, I feel completely stupefied and hollowed out. The idea of en entering that tunnel again is clearly not to be undertaken. So I, I go to the short stuff because it's, the anxiety related to writing a novel is, is, is very much to do with the length. And you don't want a 400-page anxiety. You want a, a manageable 150-page anxiety to follow. I think you used a couple of fascinating terms right there. You talked about entering the tunnel when you write a novel and the anxiety of writing a novel. Do you, do you find that um, you go into a, an abnormal emotional state when you're involved in a book? I find, well, my it's interesting contrast. My father used to go through it every day, every morning. I can remember him quaking over his breakfast at the prospect of going to begin another day's work. I'm keen to get into my study. Um, I don't have a daily recurrence of anxiety. I'm happy. It's what I want to do next after breakfast. But um, when I'm finishing a book, then I get the anxiety all at once. It's like if you're a Valium addict and you suddenly stop then all the, all the anxiety that has been chemically neutralized in your system over however long it is hits you with one clammy punch. And it's a bit like that for me. I get, I get it all towards the end as I'm finishing. The, the books that you have been alternating uh, in the past several years, Money, Einstein's Monsters, London Fields, Time's Arrow, The Information, Nitrine. They not only alternate long and short, which um, strikes me as a relatively uh, minor distinction, although obviously it does not strike uh, Martin Amos as minor, uh, but also there is a, an alternation between what we – I use these terms, and forgive me if you find them offensive, but mainstream novels and genre novels, the short ones seem to be either – at least borderline science fiction, fantasy, or the most recent one, 
uh, a mystery. The long ones are what we refer to broadly as mainstream or serious literary novels. That's true. The the shorter the the shorter the course, um, the more experimental I tend to be. And I just finished a collection of stories, um, most of which have been written since the information, the bulk of them, and um, they make the, the even the genre novels look kind of prim. Um, they are, you know, much more speculative and fantastical. Um, but it's true on the long haul, I'm very much in the kind of realist tradition. This puts me in mind of, uh, of, of a state, statement attributed to Graham Greene about the distinction that he drew between what he called novels and entertainments. Do you, do you feel that this is the same phenomenon going on? Well, I, I wouldn't say. I'd, I would be quite happy to call Night Train a kind of an entertainment, a black entertainment. But um, Time's Arrow and Einstein's Monsters, I think the, the themes of those two books, the Holocaust for one and the nuclear Holocaust for the other, kind of preclude the idea of entertainment. I think the, um, the subject, the approach may be technically tricky, but the, the subject matter has, has a weight of its own. Well, despite the, the fact that Night Train, for sure, is, uh, is a, quote, genre novel, it definitely it turns the genre on its head or attempts to. What were you going for there? Were you going for the experiment? Were you going for the genre? What was your aim? What was your goal? Well, again, you, you don't have a goal that you can put into words. What you have when you begin a novel is, is a sort of platonic ideal of what that novel could be. Um, and it's, it's, it's an inner sense, an intuition of what that novel could be. And you hope to get, you know, 95% of what it could be. And I suppose what it, what it amounts to is a, an inversion of the, the mystery slash noir novel in a kind of, I hesitate to use this word, a kind of existentialist framework. So that um, I was thinking as much of Camus as I was thinking of Elmore Leonard by the time I finished. And, and that's pretty clear by the time we come to uh, the end of the book. Uh, you also choose to have a first-person narrator be a woman, which is a switch, and her name is a male name. Yeah, she, she's a woman, all right, but she's as close to being a bloke as a woman can well get. <laughs> uh, but that, that's a kind of structural necessity because once, that, once the novel gets going, then what I'm doing is, is making the contrast between her and the victim in the case she's investigating, Jennifer Rockwell, as savage as I can get it. I, this is something I've always done. I don't know what it's about, but I do deal in very, very sharp distinctions between characters who've been given a lot in terms of talent and looks and an in-tuneness with life and the more disadvantaged. Um, this, is, this has been a theme right from my first novel, and I don't know quite where it comes from. Well, but in, uh, in the information, uh, I don't know if the distinction is as broken down as that between Tull and uh, Richard Tull and Gwyn Barry, cause, because in many respects, Tull has everything, Barry has nothing, only Barry writes Amelior, and Tull doesn't. Well, except... <laughs> um, no, he has worldly wealth and sort of societal approval, and he he is in tune with the zeitgeist in a way that Tull isn't. 
Um, in fact, you know, the very success of Gwyn Barry as an as a novelist is a, is a kind of criticism of um, you know what the reading public is prepared to consider important. So it does it broadens out into a kind of social criticism. But but Tull, over the course of the novel, Tull is is horribly reduced and Barry, you know, disgustingly elevated. But if we were to look at the two. I don't want to focus that much on the information, but there's so much more there in many respects than Night Train, mm. which is a nice, tidy little book. But one or two years prior to the action of the information, it's Tull who is the successful one with the beautiful wife, with the, the great kids, and with the career of sorts, and Barry, who's got the seedy, seedy girlfriend, and no life at all. It's a, a twist because of um, Amelia or, or you know, Bridges it, yeah. of Madison County. <laughs> That's true. It, but it's, there's a special um, horror of being overtaken from behind. And that's, that's what Tal has to live with, being eclipsed by someone you thought was comfortably your inferior. Does any of this play out in uh, Night Train, do you think, between Mike and the murdered girl? Yeah, very definitely. And... Um, it's that disparity that, that forms the kind of pas de deux of the novel, that um, the, the perfection of the victim shows up the imperfections of the investigator um, in, a, in a unbearable way, finally. Dick Lupoff. Where does Night Train take place? In an unnamed, in an imagined, imaginary American city. It is. A, a second echelon. American city. Yes. As, um, as, as I read the book, I, I kept trying to figure it out, and I thought Portland, Oregon. I somehow, and then someone else said, no, I think it's Boise, Idaho. Or so it just totally amazed me. Yeah, I had a guessing game about this book, and they often say Chicago, but I say, no, it's, it's coastal. I don't know. It's one of those artistic uh, decisions that, that I never gave a second's thought to because I was so sure it had to be an unnamed American city. Um, but, but when you don't name a city, you 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 make it more spectral and you kind of universalize it a little bit more. Um, I didn't want to tie it down to batten it down to a particular place, which 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 in in fact kind of flies in the face of genre tradition, especially mysteries where everything is so very concretized, is it not? Yes, it is. But perhaps I was signaling, you know, my my inching away or inversion of that genre, um, you know, not so specific. I'm curious as to the uh, response from critics and, and from just general man or woman in the street readers that you as an English novelist chose to set this book in America. How English readers feel about it, how American readers feel about it. Well, in English readers or English reviewers at least kind of resent my um, interest in things American and my, my various affiliations with America. And that plays into a kind of in knee-jerk anti-Americanism that you still find in England, which, you know, they used to sneer at America for being, Americans for being vulgar and counter-jumpers and, you know, um, <laughs> new kids on the block. But now they sneer at them because there's a certain um, defensiveness now in, in English anti-Americanism because America's taken center stage and England is in post-imperial decline and this is the American century. And the novel does seem to reflect the political standing of the country it originates from in 
the 19th century, England was the center of the world, and its novels reflected that. You know, big novels about the whole of society, hugely confident novels. And America has done that. You know, in the post-war period, it's become the American century in the novel also. I feel that I want a piece of that, that I'm not content with you know, the, the modesty of a literature that's, that belongs to a country in decline. In fact, the English novel has now, as since I started, uh, reinvigorated itself through the back door with the influx of the so-called Commonwealth writers who have, who have brought you know, a wonderful new strength to the English novel, I think. They've, they've given color to us all. But when I was in my 20s, the English novel was a very gray thing, a well-made, well-designed, formally correct little thing. And I looked at the big novels of America and thought, you know, that's what I want. The information, certainly, now there are scenes that take place in America. The characters are English. In that sense, it's an English novel. But it does read more as an American novel would read or a novel by an American writer. Yeah, and I think that's true of London Fields and Money. I think the difference really has to do with is shedding form as a constraint. When I wrote Money, I left England, in, in, fictionally, I left England for the first time and felt a huge freedom um, accompanying that you know, breakout. It's trusting the voice and, and not the form, is, it seems to me, the difference. Um, Saul Bellow has said that this is really the more important thing, is, is don't worry too much about the imbalances that you're going to get when you follow your nose. Just be more inclusive, be more confident, you know, let the voice lead you. And um, that's what I thought I was able to do with these longer books. It seems in the information that you take that as far as you can go. There's actually, uh, you appear in the book in the first person in a very strange way. And we only know it's you in that someone says to you at one point, Marty. And Mart, so, yeah, yeah Mart. And so we know that it's Martin Amos, and Martin Amos does not otherwise appear in the book. I'm present in the first sentences as an I, cities at night, I sense. It begins, um, I am there for the first half of the book, and then I absent myself for the second half of the book. This is one of the mo more baffling things I've done in fiction, it seems to me, and I, I still can't quite rationalize it, but I think it has to do with the information being not an autobiographical book, but a, a very personal book in a way my others aren't. And I felt I had to give some indication of where I was coming from in the first half of the book. Thereafter, I can let the characters get on with it and the novel can proceed in a, in a more conventional way. But I, I felt it was coming from me in, in, a, in a way that had to be signaled in the book. Uh, there's a lot of Martin Amos, certainly, in the character of Richard Tull, the, the venom he feels, <laughs> is, particularly concerning the fact that nobody can read his book untitled without getting sick. <laughs> I know, migraines and meningitis. You know, Richard is a marooned modernist. It used to be said in the 50s, I think Lionel Trilling said it, we like difficult books. Well, the answer to that now in the 90s is we don't like difficult books. It's not that we like easy books, but we something in the nature of daily life has changed so that when we get home at the end of a day, we don't want to curl up with a 700-page crossword clue like um, Finnegan's Wake. 
Um, we want something that speaks you know, more directly to us, doesn't stretch us till we twang, um, is more in tune with um, our, our regular selves. How often are you surprised by what you write? Um, pretty often. Uh, I was reading Chesterton the other day, and he said, um, he was t he's talking about, I guess, what you'd call the intentional fallacy, where, you know, some people said you can't attribute something to a poem or a novel that, that the author didn't intend. And he says, he says, you very much can do that. And the best criticism is the sort that makes the writer jump out of his boots because he, he suddenly realizes what he was up to. And I quite often jump out of my boots, sometimes seldom when a critic points out something that um, seems to me undeniable, but I'd never suspected it. And sometimes, you, you know, you, you just see what you were up to and, and had and that it was your unconscious that was doing it, not your conscious mind. Uh, again, you, you, you raise a very interesting point, which is, uh, I, I have phrased this differently myself in the past, but I, I think I'm just echoing what you said and what Chesterton said, that uh, there is the author's intent and there is the reader's perception and they may not always be in harmony, and it doesn't mean that the author is right and the reader misunderstood. The reader may just see something there that the author himself was not aware of. Yeah, I mean, it's time we acknowledged the fact that reading is an art. It's a secondary or a you know, collateral art, but it, it, it's very definitely an art. And when you read, you are being an artist. Now, that, that gives you certain, you know, privileges and, um, you know, a, a reader's version of what you're up to can be as good or even more accurate than your own. Every reader has a different, you know, imagining of a novel and no two imaginings are ever going to be alike. You know, the good reader, of course, doesn't identify with the characters. The good reader identifies with the author and tries to see what the author was up to, but may reach very different conclusions. Well, the, the amount of work necessary to read a book certainly plays a role in this, and I think in the difference between Night Train and the information. Now, certainly, you can read every word of Night Train and get something out of it, or you can read it like you would a genre novel, that is to say, skipping the occasional word and zipping right through it. The information, you do that for more than two paragraphs, and you're lost. Yeah. I think anyone who, on the other hand, I think anyone who did read Night Train with genre expectations is going to feel kicked in the ass at the end because I'm not, I'm not letting the genre take over quite. I'm trying to do something um, a little more adventurous than that. I felt when I was writing Night Train that, um, that style should be battened down a little bit for reasons of verisimilitude up to a point. But um, what I did want was a, was a kind of voice that, while not drawing too much attention to itself, was nonetheless of a steady rhythm without false quantities. And, you know, I think the prose is enjoyable it's in Night Train, and, and I certainly sort of put a lot into that. Uh, there are certain thematic elements, again, between the two books involving the nature of the universe. There are whole paragraphs in the information that seem... I'm not going to say intrusive because the whole book is full of <laughs> intrusive paragraphs. Uh, regarding the nature of reality, the nature of the universe, these same thoughts find their way into Nitrine. 
I'm edging around. I'm firing tracer bullets through a kind of darkness that I feel is lifting. And as soon as I start to, you know, talk discursively about this, I know I run into, you know, the danger of of sounding pretentious, if not actually clinically insane. Like but, Richard um, Tull. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. But w what I think is happening, and um, this is the, the essayistic version of it, I think the discoveries of the 20th century about our place in the universe will gradually um, excite a kind of revolution in consciousness that, that, you know, even Einstein thought that the Milky Way was the extent of the universe until Hubble came along. We then discovered that uh, the universe is expanding, but it is it has expanded in our minds at a rate, you know, sickeningly beyond the speed of light. And we now have some idea of our fragi fragility and isolation in the universe. The next paradigm shift is going to be the discovery that that this universe is just one of a of an infinity of other universes that in fact the universe bifurcates several times a second and this will be a, a huge further demotion of our centrality our illusory centrality in the in the universe you know copernicus when he said that um we were a satellite of the sun and not vice versa changed our relation to the center of the universe by only 90 million miles the paradigm shift in in this century has you know makes that look like a, you know the leap of a frog this is going to sink in and we're going to think i you know it's already got a name it's called species con um, consciousness and people like robert j lifton are, are already working towards defining this and creating a philosophy of it but what it means is that it's a great evolutionary leap for us i think because we no longer are we a collection of nations squabbling about border wars and turf. We will come to see ourselves as a species, very fragile, very alone, very isolated. And, you know, this will be part of our higher evolution. And we can perhaps quite soon reach a point where we can look back at the 20th century, I think, and see it as perhaps the last phase in an atrocious adolescence that has gone on for many centuries that we are now going to lift ourselves out of that. These are the sort of premonitions that I'm dealing with in these, in these books and in these paragraphs where I write about our place in the universe. Dick Lupa. I'm curious when you, know, when you, when you go on in this um, uh, essayistic fashion, and, I, and I, I don't condemn you for it because I find it, in fact, fascinating, but... Um, when I look around uh, the world uh, that, that we're living in and see the not merely juvenile but uh, even infantile conduct of, um, of not the man in the street who, who is perhaps because of his own narrowness of experience has little choice in the way he lives but what we think of as world leaders, intellectual and political leaders – Acting far worse than uh, intellectual and political leaders of uh, 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, the Romans uh, seemed uh, in, in some ways and the Greeks far more enlightened than, uh, than those of us living at the end of the 20th century. I don't know about that. Well, <laughs> well, some of them. Some some of I them. mean, we don't want Caligula back. Hiliago 
what and is it? slavery back, etc. I mean, slavery is a very good way of looking at evolution, the, the way that, you know, as Jonathan Shell says in his new statement about the abolition of nuclear weapons, it is far more extra- it would be far more extraordinary now to, to say you approved of slavery than to say um, in 18, the year 1800 that you thought it should be abolished. You know, there's a clear example of us getting beyond a certain notion. I think it's all going to change and accelerate because once science and technology get going, then it's, it's beginning to seem that it is an exponential business and that this is, this is going to, the next century is going to give us some really strange things, uh, some more paradigm shifts. For instance, the distinction between the organic and the mechanical is going to blur entirely in this coming century. And we're going to have mechanical things inside us and machines are going to have organic things inside them and cloning and all these things that are a nanotechnology, the technology of the very small. All these things are, you know, 10, 20 years away from really changing the way we feel about everything. So, you know, perhaps we are at last nearing the post-historical stage where we will be masters of our environment and we'll, can then sit down and think, you know, now what? Gee, Martin Amos, you sound like a science fiction writer. <laughs> What I know, what I sound like is an optimist, having never felt that that was what I was. But I, I do feel that, you know, my faith in evolution as the higher evolution has been, you know, getting to me. I just do feel these things. I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm, I'm glad you hear that because, believe me, we can use all the optimism we, we can get these days. Sometimes it seems like, like a pretty grim world that we... Aren't we allowed some exultation about um, the end of the Cold War, for instance. That, that shadow has been over my life. Deterrence was in place four days after I was born. That was when the Russians exploded their first atom bomb. You know, like Don DeLillo, or the characters in Don DeLillo's book, Underworld, I grew up with this shadow over my head. I, I had nuclear drills at school where yes. I crouched under a desktop hoping it was going to save me from the end of the world. Huge disparities, huge absurdity, right at the center of my life. This is all lifted, and mir- miraculously, and we, we, we got through that period, and who, who would have thought it? But we did, and the fact that my children aren't going to live under that shadow is a cause of constant delight to me. Yes, I, I, I do agree. You know, I think that of all the terrible things that did happen under the general rubric of the Cold War, the fact that both sides managed to come through it without just totally blowing each other to smithereens is some sort of historic miracle. Absolutely. Martin Amos, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the information, if you don't mind. Uh, nothing nothing against Nitrain, but um, I read these two books in, in succession, and Nitrain frankly pales before the information, which is a major major work on your part. Uh, you cover so much about uh, the literary world. Was this your chance at getting back at everything, do you think? No, I don't think so, because it's a, it's a more self-excoriating book than a, than a revenge on the reviewers. I thought it was, um, no, I opened myself up, you know, more to, to, to more stuff from the reviewers in this. It's, it's hardly a it's hardly a parody of the, I mean, a satire on the on the publishing world. It's more 
a satire on the writer's mind, the frailties, the vanities, the paranoias, the corrosive, you know, envies and and so on. So, um, now getting your own back on your reviewers is is very low down and on the agenda. Um, I'm writing a a memoir at the moment, which is partly about me and partly about my father and other external things. And I promised myself that I would have a go at some of the more egregious things that have been said about me by reviewers. But I can see that that little chapter shrink to a paragraph and maybe even shrink to a sentence and maybe even evaporate altogether. Uh, you don't want to give them the satisfaction even of that. You're not very nice to uh, interviewers <laughs> in the information in the trip to America. That's true. So I accept what we're doing here today as, as part of my job. I don't feel any resentment to, uh, towards the press. I think what s- singles me out for rough treatment in England also simultaneously inures me to it because I think the reason I get so much flack in England is because I'm my father's son. And the reason I don't mind that flack is because I'm my father's son. And I saw when I was growing up that he took a lot of that kind of treatment with resilience and it must have impressed itself on me that resilience would be required from me if I followed in his path. There's other characters in the information that play a role. Steve Cousins and 13. Uh, do you Did you intend them as kind of the lower class counterpoint or Cousins, sort of the other side of, if, if Barry and Tull are opposites, then Tull and Cousins are opposites, yet at the same time there's a certain similarity. Cousins, after all, is the only one in the universe who could read Richard Tull. <laughs> yeah, clear proof that he wasn't playing with a full deck. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he said he raced through it, found it a real page turner. Uh, well, he's uh, Steve Cousins is a psychopath, and and that is, you know, writers are not always distinguishable from psychopaths. What you'll also notice is that it's becoming clear to me that there are no representatives of the middle class in my novels. They're either upper or lower or intelligentsia. And similarly, in the information, they're not to be found there either. Um, it, it's a, Again, it's the, the love of extremes um, that excludes 90% of the population from my books. Martin Amos, you've now written these two books. Your next book is uh, is a memoir? Is it, well, the next book is a collection of stories and then a memoir and then an, a novel, which I've, you know, I'm tinkering with, the, with you know, a novel. People think you, you sort of settle down and choose a subject and choose the characters, you know. No, no, you don't. A novel comes as a kind of little throb and then once that's happened, you have stirrings and intuitions and the whole process, which may take five years, as it did for the information, is you finding out more about this novel. Um, certainly not planning it, not drawing up a route map, but just almost passively receiving uh, glimmerings from it. And that's, that process has begun very tentatively with a, with a new novel. So I've got a lot of writing to do. Do you uh, care to tip your hand, at least in the broadest sense, as to what the theme of this new novel would be? It's, again, I think one of the functions of the novelist is to is to give presentiments of the near future. It's It follows up on many of the themes in the information and night train of, of 
of a new consciousness that I feel is sort of somewhere ahead of us. But it's set, it'll be longish, I think, and it'll be set in England and America. And people have asked me whether Money, London Fields and the Information are a trilogy, and they kind of are, but this will make it a tetralogy, and I guess it's just going to go on until I drop down dead. You know, Graham Greene is perhaps too parad paradigmatic in this regard, that um, he wrote about his world, Greenland, um, and all that changed about it was the fact that he grew old as he wrote about it, and so the, the, view, get, the view of it gets a little bit more wintry, with the occasional glimmer of sort of antic humor, and I expect that's what's going to happen to me too, that I will write about my world, that I will get older as I do so. The three books Martin Amos discusses at the end of the interview were a short story collection, Heavy Water and Other Stories, which came out later in 1998, a much celebrated memoir, Experience, published in 2000, and another long novel, Yellow Dog. You've been listening to a January 27, 1998 interview with the late Martin Amos, who died in May 2023 at the age of 73. It was recorded while he was on tour for his novel, Night Train. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff.